Welcome to the Commune Podcast. My name is Jeff Krasnow. Today, I am just thrilled to welcome Lynn Twist to the show. Lynn is an author and speaker who has dedicated her life's work to alleviating poverty and hunger, empowering women and girls, and supporting social justice and environmental sustainability. She and her husband, Bill, are the co-founders of the Pachamama Alliance, an organization that is working in the Ecuadorian and Peruvian Amazon with indigenous people to preserve the sacred headwaters of the Amazon rainforest. She is the founder of the Soul of Money Institute and the author of the best-selling book, The Soul of Money, and the freshly released book, Living a Committed Life, Finding Freedom and Fulfillment in a Purpose Larger Than Yourself. In our conversation, Lynn shares the perspectives that she has gained from her decades as an activist working to end hunger and poverty. Her efforts as an executive of the Hunger Project has helped to reduce the number of hunger-related deaths per day from 44,000 to 16,000 on a planet that has now doubled in population since the inception of the nonprofit. She vividly shares wonderful stories, including her first meeting with Mother Teresa and the mystical visions that led her to the Amazon rainforest. Lynn does so much to improve the dream of the modern world, including empowering women's leadership and transforming people's relationship with money. Lynn's work demonstrates how a commitment to a purpose larger than yourself will enable you to see new possibilities, turn breakdowns into breakthroughs, engage in effective action, and draw on resources and capacities you didn't even know you had. Okay, before we dive in, I want to let you know about some of our impact programs that we feature on the Commune course platform. Now, if you're interested in courses on activism, leadership, civic engagement, and even how to run for office, well, then you can sign up for 14 days of free all access to Commune's entire course library, including more than 100 courses on spiritual and physical health, personal growth, and social impact. Just go to onecommune.com slash trial. And please support this podcast by subscribing and leaving a review on your favorite podcatcher. Okay, without further delay, I present to you the remarkable and the inspiring Lynn twist. Lynn Twist, what a treat. Welcome to the Commune Podcast. So great to be with you. Nice to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, well, first off, congratulations on the publishing of your most recent work, <laughs> uh, Living a Committed Life. Uh, I know the gestation period of, of books, and so that birthing process is is always lengthy and requires a lot of stamina. So well done. <laughs> In my case, it takes a village, so I, I'm grateful to the village that got me to do it. So that's a, that's that's my mo. <laughs> yeah, Ubuntu. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll get maybe get into that. Um, so in uh, in preparing for our conversation and um, in reading your book and delving a little bit into your biography, I kept landing on so many happy 
coincidences between your journey and and the journey of my family. Um, so both my parents grew up in Evanston. They oh. went to they went to Evanston Township. Really? And yeah, and um, and subsequently matriculated to Stanford in the late sixties. No um, so, and you know, sadly, my mom actually lost her dad to a heart attack at, at the age of seven. Um, and, uh, and then on my dad's side, uh, he went to Northwestern and, and, um, got his MD. He was a cardiologist. And then in, uh, when he was 57, he quit, uh, medicine in a dubious financial maneuver to become a full-time gypsy violinist. <laughs> oh my God, no way. <laughs> so there is a ton of music uh, in our no. lives. My, my, my brother's a professional musician, just a total virtuoso. And I know that obviously your dad was uh, a great renowned band leader. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and oh. then, you know, subsequently I spent, um, I, I, I grew up in Brazil. Um, so I spent a lot of time on the Amazon on the Brazilian side, anyways. Really? Um, I know you've been more focused on the Ecuadorian side, but mm-hmm. um, but I, I had a, a number of trips on the Amazon as, uh, as a kid. And then um, my senior year in high school, I spent the better half of it um, in South Africa. And so that was in 19, God, uh, 1988, I think. Um, mm-hmm. So this was still uh, pre the end of apartheid. And mm-hmm. uh, I know you have some wonderful stories that I hope to mine about your time in, in South Africa. Um, How did you end up growing up in Brazil? I know you're supposed to interview me, but that's so fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it, it, it does dovetail with the conversation. Um, you know, so my dad, you know, grew up, um, and you're younger than my parents, but I, I think that there was some consilience there. You know, my dad grew up in the time of, of, of Kennedy and public service and, you know, ask not what you can do or ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country, this ethos um, mm-hmm. that was uh, permeated a certain time in our country. Mm-hmm. And so my parents joined the Peace Corps for a while, and then uh, my dad became a Fulbright professor, and we were kind of getting shipped around Europe. Um, and then he ended up running the Ford Foundation for Latin America in, really? in, in Brazil. And so he was very into education, and cultural exchange around education um and uh his claim to fame or or my claim to fame i should say is that he was instrumental in bringing sesame street um to brazil and to latin america um, at that time when we were there uh and then and then my mom went on to get her phd in um in political science and conflict resolution and uh and went on to work at the un and then taught uh conflict resolution and, and peacekeeping at the University of Accra in Ghana, which I also know you spent time oh in, in Accra. Yeah. So <laughs> I oh kept coming across all of these unbelievable <laughs> uh, intersections. And then, of course, we share a lot of a lot of common friends, um, Louis Schwartzberg yeah. and Jack Kornfield and Paul Hawken and so many others. Mm-hmm. So it's just so great to be in, in your orbit and uh connect with you directly here. What are your parents' names, just in case there's any way I knew them? Yeah, so it was Gene and, and Richard Krasno. Um, so who knows? Um, the world is vast, but... Uh, That's amazing. Yeah, yeah, I feel there are so many different points of intersection that I, I, 
I kept having these moments of Satori. <laughs> through, Maybe through. we were in the same place at the same time many times and, and didn't know it until now. I don't know. Uh, I don't know. Possibly. I don't know. Um, well, I, I have hinted a, a little at your early biography. Um, and, you know, despite losing your dad, which I know was a, a devastating experience for you, you know, you self-admittedly grew up in a, in a very... Um, I guess I would say maybe privileged environment. You were a wonderful student. Um, you went to a great college. You married a super hunk of a successful yeah. <laughs> um, guy. Everything um, in your life, seemingly from the outside, was was very rosy. Um, but you weren't fulfilled. And so I, I wonder if you could unpack that a little bit and... Um, you know, why was this life that was seemingly so wonderful from the outside uh, unfulfilling? And what was the inflection point that um, really inspired you to uh, to grab the the splendid torch, if you will, uh, towards a towards a committed life? Um, well, I think there uh, the roots of that were in my probably in my family, like in yours, actually, my mother was very socially active um, and was raised in, in immense privilege, way more privilege than, than I. Uh, she was raised in Korea. Her father was an engineer and um, was hired by the emperor of Korea in 1895. His engineering firm was hired to build the entire railroad system for the whole country and, and bring Korea into the into the 20th century. And um, that was a huge assignment. I mean, you know, all the bridges over the Han River, the, the connecting the entire country by rail. And then he built the electric system in Seoul and the water system in Seoul. So anyway, he, that, that one engineering firm was hired by the emperor to do everything. And he made a, a huge fortune. Wow. And my mother was raised there in a way that was totally colonial and hated it. Uh, hmm. She was treated like a precious white child, she and her sister, who were carried around in jiggy sticks on a little thing, <laughs> one of those things. Sure. And so when she, um, when she got married and got out of that situation, <clears throat> um, she, uh, they lost all the money, by the way, in the depression, so there was no money left, but all that privilege and the way she was raised was upsetting for her. So she raised us in Evanston, Illinois, because Evanston was the only integrated school system in the United States at the time. That's the right. The only one. Yeah. And it was in the 50s. And, um, you know, I had no idea. I was just in first grade, second grade, third grade. But I, we went to school with, uh, with African-American people, and nobody else did that. And um, so that, that, there was something there, I'll say. I, didn't, I hadn't thought of that, really. I don't think I put that in my book. But then when my father died because we were raised as Catholics, I got super religious and um, thinking that it was my fault, like most children do when they lose a parent, they don't understand it, you can't explain it to them. So children often think that the death of a parent is their fault, uh, especially when you're Catholic, because you know, Catholicism breeds a lot of guilt in there, we're really good at guilt. Yes. <laughs> um, so I developed what I'll call my inner life in high school when people are not doing that. In fact, I wasn't doing it uh, publicly, I was privately doing it because I was a 
cheerleader and I was homecoming queen and I was this and I was that. I was one of those kids that kind of did everything in a big public high school. And then um, when I got to college, uh, I went to Stanford, as you as you mentioned, I, I got very involved in poetry. And mm. poetry, you know, I don't know, became like a spiritual thing for me. I, uh, Ivor Winters was on campus at the time. He was a resident poet. I started studying Rumi and Tagore and Rilke when, before people were talking about that. Uh, now it's quite common, but I just, I felt like I discovered this deep soul in poetry. So that was another track. And then, um, and then I, I think the big turning point was taking Est. I just want to admit openly and publicly that the EST training, which was so controversial and kind of out of the box and weird, was a huge event for me. Um, I, I, the human potential movement was just getting born and Werner Erhard was a little bit, uh, you know, kind of like came across as kind of sleazy to many people and had invented this thing called the EST training. And, um, and I just, got into that hook, line, and sinker, and it really, really reshaped and transformed my life. I let go of the guilt of my father's death. I discovered that my inner life was the fullness of what was available for human beings. I, um, I through the EST network, uh, was lucky enough to connect Buckminster Fuller to Werner Erhard, which created the miracle of this amazing thing called the hunger project where i worked for 20 25 years on ending world hunger which took me to mother Teresa. you know at the feet of mother Teresa, you can't get better <laughs> than that so um i feel like i was in the right place at the right time circumstances arranged themselves or maybe i was paying attention in a way that i developed an inner life that was pretty rich in high school and and in high school that's not what's happening you know yeah. So I, I feel like that was a big gift. My father's death was a tragedy and a gift in, in that way. Um, and, um, and, and so be, because he was such a hero for me when he died, and I felt so guilty about it, I made a kind of silent vow that I would live a life that he would be so proud of, hmm. that he would be so, he would look down from heaven or wherever he went and he would be proud of me. I would go to Stanford, which is where he went. I would make a difference. I would be, you know, I would, I would do my best. And so, I don't know, all of that conspired to give me this path of what I'm calling a committed life. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. Mm -hmm. Well, I don't know your dad, but my sense is that he'd be very proud. <laughs> <laughs> Est was curious because, um, you know, Werner, um, and I don't know a tremendous amount about it, but I know that he was highly influenced by Zen and Zen mm -hmm. Buddhism. And, there, and um, you know, there's this really interesting cadre of, of people in the 50s and 60s, and particularly in California, Alan Watts and Aldous Huxley and Krishnamurti, and um, that were kind of influential on lots of people and very tied in to, as you say, the, the human potential movement. And, uh, and I know the, the Werner was, 
was part of that group and, and very influenced by that group, particularly Alan Watts, who I'm a huge mm-hmm. fan of. Um, so there were elements of the S training that were that came right out of Zen, and in some cases a, a bit draconian. Yeah. <laughs> it's just yeah. like you couldn't go to the bathroom, you know, um, or whatever. For um, but it really did bend the arc of a lot of people's lives. And like mm-hmm. you say, it, it's controversial and, you know, later became, um, if I'm correct, I think his brother took it over and, and then yeah. it, it transformed into Landmark um, landmark Forum. But um, I think it's just amazing that you were able to facilitate this connection between um, Warner and Buckminster Fuller. So maybe for those who don't know, um, can you give us uh, a little window into Buckminster Fuller, Fuller? Because he is among the most fascinating people of the 20th century, but I'm not sure that everyone has fluency with his biography. So could you yeah. give us a little it's, color there? <laughs> yeah, I will. I, I love it because when I say his name to younger people, they they have no idea who I'm talking about. And then yeah. I just love telling them about Bucky. So um, Buckminster Fuller lived in the 20th century. He was called the grandfather of the future. He invented the geodesic dome, which was that the thing he was most famous for. He lived a life that was committed to uh, an ethic he called creating a world that works for everyone with no one and nothing left out. Mm. Creating a world that works for everyone with no one and nothing left out. That was his ethic. And could one single little individual, he called himself, make a difference that would impact the future of humanity positively. And he lived his life as that experiment. Could one little individual, and he called himself ordinary, although I thought he was extraordinary, he became extraordinary, um, live a life that would impact all of humanity in a positive way. So he invented an electric car in, in 1949. I mean, he saw the end of fossil fuels coming long before anybody else. Yeah, that's incredible. Um, he also predicted the uh, the collapse of our institutions in this decade that we're in now, uh, 50 years ago, that the um, institutions of humankind would all begin to become so dysfunctional we couldn't fix them. He said in 1976, somewhere in the next 50 years, probably about 50 years from now, he said in 1976, uh, because they're rooted in a you or me paradigm, a scarcity paradigm. Right. And that's an inaccurate paradigm. The paradigm that will have us for thrive and survive is a you and me paradigm. We all sure your program is about that. So he was an amazing human being and a kind of short, funny little man, bald yes. from the time he was a young man with thick glasses. He was sort of built like a little fire plug. And he looked like a grandpa, you know, probably the, by, by the time he was 40 or 50, but I knew him when he was in, entering his 80s. And he was like a grandfather of the future, uh, a futurist, a humanist. Uh, a, 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 technically, he was an engineer and an architect. Uh, but what he was really about was the intellectual integrity of the universe and tapping into that to understand how to live. Mm. And um, for me, he was a huge influence and a great teacher. And I'll just I always like to say, to be honest, I didn't understand a lot of what he said. He would, <laughs> know, yeah. went right over my head. But who he was spoke so loudly. This is an Emerson quote. Who he was spoke so loudly, I couldn't hear the words he was saying. I, I just loved him. I loved Bucky's energy. I loved his love for the world. 
So he was a great influence on me. And then introducing him to Werner Erhard, who, although highly controversial and quite an interesting character, still is. I just saw him recently in, in, in London, had dinner with him. Um, these two men were really uh, original thinkers. I will call them both original thinkers, uh, really using everything available like Zen, like you referred to Werner, uh, but also taking all of that and creating something new and really powerful out of what was available during their time and uh, generating and sourcing uh, a kind of new thinking that I, I considered certainly a breakthrough for me, but I think a breakthrough for millions and millions and millions of people. Yeah. You know, my wife is a, a yoga teacher and um, I actually went into our basement this morning and, and pulled out this. So oh for the, my God. This is a Tensegrity <laughs> model. So mm -hmm. Bucky Fuller, as you said, it was, um, he was a, an architect and uh, one of his designs was this Tensegrity uh, concept as the kind of intellectual or also physical architecture of the universe. Um, and there's so many applications to it. My wife obviously uses it uh, as an anatomical model. So the kind of connection of, of all of your bones with, you know, ligaments and, and muscle and musculature, and that there is a certain tension that is required to establish sort of the unity of the whole and that there is a unity of a whole, that all mm -hmm. of your sing singular bones and singular musculature do, do not exist uh, in a vacuum or in a silo. And this was part of kind of his systems thinking um, that we are all interconnected. And then you can apply that same kind of architecture to the forest and to, yes. uh, to yeah. humankind. And, and it had so many different applications. But I, I think, you know, what you're pointing to you know, is that, that he really came to the um, realization that at a certain point in human history, we had enough. We yes. had the technology and the innovation um, that created the enoughness for everyone to live a, a healthy and productive life. And, and I think, and you can kind of lead me here, but that that idea was at the core of the hunger project, mm -hmm. and um, and so so can you just um, anchor us a little bit in the in the substrate of, of the hunger project and what was its mission and some of its um, very innovative methods because it, it definitely bucked the trend in terms of how many organizations were thinking about hunger. Well, the, I think the key insight that you just shared from Bucky was at the heart of the Hunger Project's uh, ethos um, that there is enough for everyone everywhere to have a healthy and productive life. And prior to 1970s in the United States and the world, there wasn't that even that thought of a possibility. Hmm. Our belief was that there were scarce resources and we needed to fight over them and some people would win and some people would lose. Now we still have that mindset in many cases, but it's no longer valid or appropriate and hasn't been for a very long time. And Bucky made that really, really clear. Um, both uh, practically, let's say, you know, there is, a, there is enough like an amount, but also there's enough 
enough, not as an amount of anything, but a way of being, being in the world mm. that, uh, that is, uh, has trust, has, has a, 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 a respect for the sacred integrity of life, that it is meant to go on, you know, it is meant for everybody to thrive. That's, that's not, uh, that, that, that's not, you know, just luck. No, that's the way the whole thing is designed. Um, and, and Bucky really made that so clear in conversations with Werner Erhard, who was looking at how could he take the 75,000 kind of, they used to be called est holes, pardon my name, but <laughs> because they were so enthusiastic right. from having their life suddenly transformed that they became kind of obnoxious and cult-like. And Werner was looking at, he had 75,000 graduates, they were called from the S training who were, you know, behaving with their transformed way and trying to recruit everybody in the world to their, their way of seeing that they became a little obnoxious. And Werner wanted to take that power and have it not be so self-absorbed, the people who'd taken the S training, and turn it uh, towards the something useful. And he was studying hunger at the time. Hmm. And, uh, as one of the most fundamental breakdowns in the human family, that we couldn't feed ourselves and each other, uh, and that 44,000 at that time, 1977, on a planet of 4.3 billion people, 44,000 people, most of them children under five, were dying every single day from hunger and, and starvation. And that was just unconscionable. And Werner wanted to do something about it. And then his interactions with Bucky, who was coming from this enoughness, this intellectual integrity of the universe, let me say, because that was a phrase he used. They came together and in that meeting and then subsequent meetings with other wonderful people like John Denver and Roy Prosterman and other really amazing people, Werner had the guts, the courage to commit to ending world hunger. No one had ever thought the thought, you can end world hunger, you can alleviate the suffering, you can make it not so bad, you can help people. But ending it was like very bold and very um, courageous and almost uh, foolhardy. People then there was huge criticism because it was it sounded arrogant. It sounded uh, ridiculous, like saying I'm going to end rain. You know, it's never going to rain again because I say so. And so people really criticized him. But what happened for the whole hunger response community? was first a, a big bash, backlash to that idea, but then ultimately now, and you know, within 10 or 20 years, every organization on earth working on hunger is trying to end it. Mm. That actually it is possible to end hunger. And when you create that possibility, that distinction, then the work you do shifts from trying to make it not so bad to actually eradication of the source of a planet that would be filled with abundant resources and yet uh, people are not taken care of or taking care of each other. So Bucky and Werner worked on the Hunger Project idea as an integrity issue rather than a food issue. Mm -hmm. And that called for transformation, transformation in the way that we see ourselves, each other, the resources on this planet and future generations. And the distinctions of transformation are what I was trained in and that's uh, really so this book, I would say, because we at the Hunger Project approached the hunger issue uh, from transformation to transform 
the way we were thinking about ourselves and each other in a way that we would live on a planet where we would care for each other completely and not let anyone starve, a child or an old person, anyone starve when there's plenty for everyone to have a healthy and productive life. So, mm. um, and then we were very innovative and criticized because everything was about moving food around and aid. Uh, but we saw people as inherently self-reliant and self-sufficient when given the opportunity. So, and a particularly favorite part of the tenet of the Hunger Project for me was it, we saw early on that in the empowerment of women and girls was the most powerful intervention for eradicating hunger, starvation, and poverty. And no one saw that. Uh, and then now everybody sees it. So I, I, we can't take credit for it exactly because I'm sure it was popping up everywhere, but that was a very powerful and is still a very powerful aspect of the work of the Hunger Project. Our mutual friend, Paul Hawkin, uh, I think put his thumb uh, on that same idea as it relates yes. to, to drawdown and, and to, um, you know, moving into a more sustainable world that it's, yes, it is also renewable resources, but it, but a huge part of the equation. In fact, I think he ranked them from one to a hundred or one to 50 and educating women and girls was number five or number six. So I think it's number six and seven. And if you put area. them together, they're number one. Right. Yeah. In fact, you know, so Werner, um, as part of you facilitating this introduction, um, and then, um, and then subsequently being such a central figure in the hunger project for, for so many years, but you know, I, to be honest, I'm learning so much through through learning about you. <laughs> so in the research, um, I I, uh, I came across his paper that you refer to in your book. It's called "Ending Starvation: An, I I an Idea Whose Time Has Come," mm -hmm. which is a borrowing from the Victor Hugo idea. There's nothing uh, more powerful nothing. than an idea <laughs> whose time has come, and um, and I read the the paper, um, mm -hmm. and it is just one of the most inspirational. Um, uh, pieces of writing I've read in, in some time, and just to kind of give people um, an idea of the scale. So I just have one little excerpt that I'll read. Um, so starvation both maintains and dramatizes a world that does not work. Persisting throughout history, it has accounted for more deaths and suffering than all epidemics, wars, and natural disasters combined. During the past five years alone, more people have died as a consequence of starvation than from all the wars, revolutions, and murders of the past 150 years. As you read this, 28 people are dying in our world each minute as a consequence of hunger, three quarters of them children. I mean, that is just a you know, stark, um, brisk slap in the face if, if anyone needs one. Now, of course, this was some time ago. Yes. Um, and so, you know, how, how do you feel kind of with a number of decades of, of hindsight in terms of some of the um, methodology that you adopted that now seems to be in great vogue? So like concepts like microfinance, for mm -hmm. example, mm -hmm. that now, you know, is, is, is accepted as a, as a, as a great um, concept. But with all this hindsight, you, what were some of the greatest 
accomplishments and if there were kind of any shortcomings of the hunger project in terms of how you feel about it now and and the achievement of some of the goals that were were set out well i'll say first of all the hunger project was rooted in making a commitment to end it and given that i've just written this book about living a committed life <laughs> i i had to really go back and see that it was the the commitment to end world hunger like this bold you know kind of mm breathtaking commitment that swept me off my feet when Werner made that commitment. I, I couldn't believe a person could ha have that kind of courage, but it was so inspiring to me that I made that commitment too. I don't, you know, I mean, millions of people did, but I was one of the first, uh, along with the handful of people who were there in the room when he made that commitment to join him in that. And it, it, this thing about making a commitment to end world hunger and then working from that commitment when you make a commitment, and this is something that I share about in the book, especially a big commitment that's way bigger than your own life starring you, your own little life starring you, a commitment that really, you know, is world shaking. That commitment comes back and shapes you into the person you need to be to fulfill it. Mm. Rather than you, you're all turned out and ready to make a commitment because you know you can do it. No, it's kind of the opposite. <laughs> You, you make this bold commitment and then the commitment comes has such power, if you really mean it, to shape you into the person who can actually fulfill the goddamn thing. So <laughs> <laughs> that is what happened in the Hunger Project for millions of people. And I'm not kidding. Yeah. We created an enrollment campaign to enroll people in the commitment to end hunger because there wasn't that commitment in the world. There was a commitment to alleviate suffering to feel sorry for hungry people, to do things to help them it not be so bad, to work really at the periphery of the problem, we used to say. But a commitment to end it put you right in the center of the action. And then we started to realize there's nobody to feel sorry for. There's no pity allowed in this. The people who are hungry, people living in the conditions of hunger and poverty are in the front lines of ending world hunger. And what a privilege to stand next to them and join them because they're not poor and we call them poor. But what's poor is their circumstances, not them. In fact, people living in those conditions are some of the strongest, most resilient, most creative people on planet Earth. Those circumstances almost forge and you might say force an inner strength that those of us who live comfortable lives don't need to find, you know, we don't, we're, we're, everything's so cushy for us, you know, but that, that is when you start getting engaged with people living in conditions of hunger and poverty, you realize how strong they are and how creative they are. They, we used to say, and I still do say they, a, a hungry person, especially a mother exhibits more courage to, to get through one day than you and I are going to need in our lifetime. And, um, and to work with people like that, side by side as co-equal partners in ending hunger rather than, you know, I have something to give you because you don't have enough. No, they have resources. Their haves, not H-A-L-V-E-S, but yeah. H-A, not haves and have nots. It's not like that. We all, we all have strong strengths. We all have capacities and coming together with the kind of resources that someone like I would have, you know, money, power, influence, education, 
with Ethiopian women who are who who can't feed their own children, but the strength of their character and their relationship with the creator and their understanding of the natural world and their their resolve to live is 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 it is a huge uh, strength and and capacity. So anyway, um, the Hunger Project taught me and millions of people about commitment, the power of it. The Hunger Project taught me and millions of people about looking for what's missing. This is another distinction of the Hunger Project, rather than what's wrong. And when you ask the question, what's wrong, that these people are hungry or this country is a place where people can't feed themselves, you blame and point fingers and you, it, it creates a particular kind of dynamic. But if you look and say, what's missing, that if provided would transform the situation, then you see what you can bring or make happen that will fulfill the intentionality for people to live healthy and productive lives, which is already there. Um, so those are some of the distinctions. And then the, the purity of transformation, you know, Werner always taught transformation from the, from the depth of ontology, way of being, um, mm -hmm. which is, I didn't really know there was a thing called ontology. And, you know, I knew there was spirituality, <laughs> psychology, philosophy, all those other things. But ontology, boy, that's really something to pay attention to, to learn about, to find some skills in, ways of being. So I, um, I'm very grateful to The Hunger Project. And The Hunger Project thrives today. I will say one other thing because you're giving me the opportunity to say this, and I'm so uh, touched by this. When we started The Hunger Project in 1977, there were 4.3 billion people on planet Earth and 44,000 deaths a day. Uh, hunger has not ended, but today, or actually this is, this is before the pandemic, so I, can't, I don't have more recent stats, but let's say recently, we reached nearly uh, eight, but we're now at eight billion people, but in the last few years, we've been at 7.8 billion people on this planet almost twice as many people. And the number of deaths per day have dropped to 16,000, from 44,000 to 16,000 on a planet that's twice as many people. So the, this, it's staggering what has happened. Now the pandemic has complicated everything. Obviously uh, climate change is complicating everything, but I just wanna say that trajectory, to, re to change that trajectory, to have that is a huge thing that happened. I can't take any credit for myself, nor can the Hunger Project, but it wasn't going that way. So something really did and is working about, uh, about the way the Hunger Project approached that issue. Yeah. <clears throat> well, that is a dramatic um, improvement. And, um, you know, I think that uh, just given sort of the 24-7 news cycle that is designed to leverage human negativity bias and play on outrage and fear and doom and gloom uh, for the sake generally of selling advertising. But um, anyways, that's a whole nother conversation. But it, it, it really contributes to this feeling that, um, that uh, you know, we're just on the precipice and, and, and everything is negative. Um, and there are certainly many challenges and obstacles uh, across the current landscape 
But at the same time, I, you know, I, I do think it's important to acknowledge the places where humans have actually collaborated and found cooperative solutions to bend the arc of history towards a better day. And, and there are countless of examples. I think you point to... Um, Who's the New York Times writer? Uh, Nicholas Kristof, is that his name? Oh, I love his stuff. Yeah. Oh, my God. Or I think every year he writes that column, yeah. which is like, why this year was the best year ever to be alive. History, and, yeah. Yeah. So and, good. Um, um, and we need a little bit more of that in our life, you know. I, um, and, uh, you know, I think I read uh, in Steven Pinker's book that over the decade from 2003, to 2013, the average life expectancy of people in Africa grew 10 years. Oh my God, really? And <gasps> so if you actually think about that through that 10 year period, no one got any older <laughs> in terms of a life expectancy standpoint. And so, you know, there's a, a lot of you know, um, great accomplishments that we can point to. And, and I think, you know, the thread that consistently appears through your work um, is that humans are actually innately cooperative, or mm -hmm. I would say that nature is innately cooperative. Mm -hmm. and, and your work is so vast, like I said, it's pointed me in so many different directions. So I ended up... Um, I've been reading The Overstory by, by Richard Powers, oh, which is such book. a wonderful book. Huh. And there's a character in it, Patricia Westerford, I think is her name. Mm -hmm. And that character is based on a woman from British Columbia named Suzanne Simran, I think. Suzanne um, Simard, Dr. Suzanne yeah. Simard. She's a good friend of mine, yeah. Okay, yeah, she, her work is just fascinating. Mm -hmm. And it, it it speaks to this, this inherent... Uh, cooperative na um, operating system of nature. Now, she specifically talks about trees mm -hmm. and how trees share, literally share food with one another. That's mm -hmm. sort of a, a great simplification uh, of it. Um, but that, you know, we've been tricked in a way to think that survival of the fittest means competition, where mm -hmm. actually when we more thoroughly e examine nature, uh, nature actually selects for cooperation, mm -hmm. um, which is fascinating. And, you know, I, you know, I was reading, um, and potentially this is a good segue from um, the Hunger Project to the Pachamama Alliance, although I do want to touch on the, uh, some of your, your stories with Mother Teresa, but I was reading some of the... Um, uh, the mission principles of um, of the Pachamama Alliance, and, and it, you know, I think maybe number three or four is this change in human consciousness back towards cooperation. Th that in some ways, over the last maybe century and a half, we've confused culture and nature. So we often say, oh, it's just natural that people are egocentric and they're looking out for themselves and they're looking out for their families first and they're accumulating more and more and more. But that's not really nature. That's culture. 
nature, actually, if you really look at it, we lived in tribes and we hunted for each other and we raised each other's children and we were extremely cooperative. So um, it's, uh, you know, I think, you know, part of your work, which I'm so fascinated by, is how do we actually move, shift human consciousness back towards this awareness of interpenetration or of interbeing? Um, mm-hmm. Anyways, I know that's a little bit of a, a tangent there, but um, the, the the other part of, um, you know, what you said about really recognizing the most immiserated people as not have nots, um, I, I think is, is really a key observation. And uh, I, again, I look at the plant world, some of the plants that are actually grown in stressed soil, they actually are the strongest plants. You know, they develop mm-hmm. what are known as polyphenols are actually a result of plants growing in stressed soil. So, um, which that. is fascinating. Yeah, it's this whole thing yeah. called xenohormesis. Um, and so actually some of the, like the blue zones, these places where people live to a hundred, not only do they have great cooperation and community, but they tend to be eating stressed plants. Wow. That's a whole other issue. Oh, cool. You had a particular meeting with Mother Teresa, and then you became a, a pen pal. Um, <laughs> but um, where you had a, a great learning about extending compassion not only to those people who are suffering in many cases from starvation, but extending compassion to the people that we generally consider the haves. Can, can you talk a little bit about your meeting with Mother Teresa and, and, uh, and you know, what you came out, um, the, the learnings that she imparted? Uh, yeah, well, it was my first meeting with her, actually. And I, um, as I mentioned, I was raised as a Catholic. And I, when I was a little girl, I kind of thought a little bit about becoming a nun because, I don't know, <laughs> nuns were so beautiful. And, and there was this movie with Audrey Hepburn and the nun story, and she looked so good in her, her habit. Her she was habit. so pretty. I thought, oh, I, I, I would look good in a habit. But Bill, but I, was, uh, but Bill was just <laughs> undeniable, so, right? <laughs> But um, anyway, I, I, and when my father died and I got really religious, it, 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 I thought maybe I should become a nun. So, you know, this is, this is kind of the ethic of the Catholicism when you're raised in that. But I always thought, but I wasn't so sure about actually the Pope, I got to say. The church kind of bothered me. There were all these rules and stuff. But Mother Teresa, she was like untouchable. She was the primo, you know, she was the icon of, of what I thought religion, Catholicism, and holiness was all about. And then I grow up, and then I'm working in India, and I realize, oh, my God, I'm, I'm in India. I'm working on hunger. Maybe I'll meet Mother Teresa. I mean, maybe I, somehow it, it just occurred to me one day, and I shared that with a friend, and her name is Indira, and she right away said, oh, I know Mother Teresa. Like, <laughs> doesn't everybody know Mother Teresa? And I thought, you know Mother Teresa? You're kidding. So, um she, after a whole series of conversations, inter- uh, set up a meeting for me with Mother Teresa in an orphanage in Delhi. And I, I remember before I, when I found out, I found out the morning of the meeting I was going to meet with Mother Teresa and I got completely freaked out. 
because I was no longer Catholic and I hadn't been to confession, if you know what that is, or communion or church or anything for years and years and years. So I, 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 I suddenly practically took a bath in holy water. I went to church. <laughs> I, I, I canceled everything. I was going to meet with her in the evening at 730 that night. And I found out about it at about 730 in the morning. That day, I tried to recover my religious holiness in order to meet with her. I was so nervous. So then when I actually arrived at, at the orphanage in, in Old Delhi um, and I, I was coming up the front steps, there was a crumpled piece of newspaper that I picked up because I'm a sort of a trash picker up a kind of person. And uh, as I picked it up, <gasps> I realized inside of this crumpled piece of newspaper, there was a, a baby girl, a child, an infant. It was, mm. This was the smallest human being I've ever seen in my life. You know, memory has it that my hand, she was about the size of my hand. She was so tiny, premature little baby girl. And she was still breathing and her heart was beating. And I I couldn't believe that I was bringing this little being into the orphanage. I wrapped her in my shawl. Um, I, I knocked on the door and the, a nun answered. And I immediately handed over this tiny child and said this, little baby was on the doorstep uh, and they immediately rushed the baby somewhere I don't know to make sure that that she would survive and then um, someone else greeted me and said uh, I said I'm here to meet with Mother Teresa and they said well I'm sorry she's not here thought, oh my <laughs> god I'm on the wrong day and they said no she's she's in the in the local prison bailing out local prostitutes because we have so many children here we need help so we're trying to get some of those women to be bailed out so they come help us. And so I said, well, I'll be glad to help you. And so they put an apron on me and I, I started, uh, I went over to a series of sinks where there was other nuns and volunteers and they were bathing little girls under two, that this was an orphanage for children under two, primarily girls that had one finger missing or they were blind or they were mostly deformed in some way or, or you know, discarded babies. Um, and it was just, uh, it sounded so tragic, but it was blissful. I was in Mother Teresa's orphanage. I was bathing little tiny baby children. I was with nuns who were singing. It was, you know, it was absolutely, it was like being in heaven. And I remember thinking, God, this is my meeting with Mother Teresa. She always used to say, I am my work. And then with, within maybe, I don't know, half hour, 45 minutes, and I'm just in absolute heaven doing these, watching these little babies. Um, someone taps me on the shoulder and says, she's here. So then I get all nervous again. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, walk down, follow a nun down the hall to a, a, another hallway. It was a dark hallway. I remember this very, very distinctly. And I thought, gosh, is this where I'm going to meet with her? And there was a, a little wooden table and two chairs on either side. Uh, against the wall and I sat in one of the chairs and and then within maybe a, five minutes I see a Labrador retriever coming down this long dark hallway with a little gray beard and this is her I knew that this was her dog who preceded her everywhere her beloved yeah, Labrador yeah. Uh, you know crippled old little dog beautiful dog and behind her was behind the dog was Mother Teresa tiny tiny human being all bent over from osteoporosis, mm. wearing sandals and her gnarly little toes were sticking out. I mean, it was just like, oh my God, 
it's Mother Teresa. And I remember rushing over and kneeling at her feet. And when I knelt, I was about her height. She was so, so yeah. small. Yeah. And she put her hands on my head and I, you know, I did what you're supposed to do, kissed her hand. And I thought I should kiss her feet. And then she said, no, no, get up, get up, get up, get up. <laughs> and then I felt like a giant. Anyway, she took me over to this little table and chairs and we started this conversation about uh, hunger and poverty. And I, I actually can't even remember what she said because that wasn't what was going on. It was just like, I was, tears were streaming down my face. I was in, yeah, in the company of a, of a, of a saint. I, I have yeah. no idea what she said or what we talked about. Really, it just was just blissful. And then there was this huge, loud noise down the other end of the hall. And it was like a scuffle and loud, angry Indian voices. And, um, and then a, an aroma which I'll, I'll call it like a, a, a kind of a terrible smell, an overperfumed smell, smell like when you get in a taxi in New York and they have one of those, those oh, yeah. aroma things. It was so strong. And um, I could smell and hear angry, loud people. And a couple came into this meeting that I was having with Mother Teresa, burst into the, down the hall, loud, boisterous, big. The man, the, the husband, had he was a Sikh. He had a, a, a turban on with a big, giant topaz right here in his turban. And he was portly and huge. I mean, you know, just gigantic. <laughs> now, very portly, very elegant, uh, but but over um, overdone. And he had a ring. I remember he had a ring on every single finger on one of his hands, including his thumb. I, that, I, I'll never forget that thing, <laughs> ring on his thumb. And then his, what I think was his wife, she was behind him, you know, with a very shrill kind of voice. She was overperfumed, overdressed, overweight, overbearing, over, 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 over the top. She had a, a diamond in her nose and then diamonds that went from there, her nose to her ear like that. She was just, and, and she was sort of falling out of her sorry because she was a huge, large person. So they're loud and angry and rude and, and ugly and smelly, actually. And they burst into my meeting with Mother Teresa. <laughs> I hated that. That was not okay with me. And, and then the woman said, Mother, we didn't get the picture, was, was what she said. And, and I didn't know what they were talking about. And then she handed me an Instamatic. If you remember an old Instamatic camera, these little Kodak cameras? Sure. sure. They're back in vogue. <laughs> yeah, are they? Yeah. And she pulled Mother Teresa up by the elbow. I'll never forget this, like violently. It seemed violent to me at the time. Come on, Mother, over here. We want this picture. And this big, giant man, okay, you can imagine him, and this big, giant woman. And then Mother Teresa in the middle like this <laughs> with her little bent over head. And I took the picture, but I, I, I put it a gun. I, I might've shot these people. So I'm glad it wasn't a gun. <laughs> and then, and then the woman did the most unforgettable thing, unforgivable and unforgettable. Mother Teresa had, was very bent over and osteoporosis. And that's very painful. And she went <clears throat> and held Mother Teresa's chin up like this with her hand under her chin and asked me to take another picture. And I swear, I, I was so furious at these people. I took the picture the lady grabbed the camera, and they left. They didn't thank me or say anything to Mother Teresa or didn't hug her, none, nothing. They were so horrible, and I hated them. I, I really, I got to cop to this. I hated these people. They were awful. They were rude. They were entitled. They were rich. They were ugly. They were 
fat. They were awful. And Mother Teresa <laughs> sat down, didn't bother her at all. I'm fuming. And I try to calm myself down and we sit down and resume our meeting. And, but my blood is boiling. And uh, we finally, you know, a few minutes later, she, we complete, I give her a hug. She gives me a scapular matter for my mother. I ask her to pray for my son. And, you know, I finished the meeting and walked through the orphanage, said goodbye to the children and the nuns, get in the car. And I'm still, you know, my, my, my body's tense. I'm so angry with these people. And I have a 45 minute back, uh, ride back to uh, New Delhi. And I finally calmed down and I realized that I had the experience of complete and total unconditional, unconditional blissful love with Mother Teresa. And in the same space and in the same time and in her presence, I had an experience of profound hate. Mm. And she did not. She mm. was fine with those people. Mm. She saw Christ in their face. She sees Christ in every face. And when I got back to the hotel, I wrote her a letter thanking her for the teaching because I realized that was my teaching with Mother Teresa. And, um, and she wrote me back, which is, was so cool that she wrote me back. Uh, and she signed her letters, <laughs> M. Teresa, Sister M. Teresa. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. Um, uh, and she said, "Your uh, thank you for your your letter, and I want you to know that you're naturally drawn to serve those who are uh, struggling, suffering, less fortunate, poor, hungry, um, in, in need. But your circle of compassion needs to widen and include the entitled, the wealthy, the rude, uh, the calcified, uh, the, the people who are living in the vicious cycle of wealth because it can be as intractable and as painful as the vicious cycle of poverty. Mm. And it just floored me. And I realized that, yes, that she saw Christ in those faces too, and that I didn't. And from that morning meeting forward, I have become... I think very skillful and very dedicated to to support people of great wealth to stay in their in the core of their heart. It's hard. Yeah. Um, so the Soul of Money Institute, which is another thing that I do, uh, has we serve often very 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 wealthy families that are struggling with the how wealth can amplify the worst in us rather than resolve it. Um, but anyway, I'll, I'll, I'll stop there. That was my my yeah. very, very seminal first meeting with Mother Teresa. And then I, I ended up working with her and getting to know her quite well. Yeah, that's that's a, a wonderful story full of rich imagery. Uh, <laughs> also, the the details that we seem to remember through life, like the, the <laughs> ring, like the ring on the thumb is <laughs> curious. Um <laughs> <laughs> but that obviously the learning here, at least for me and my interpretation was, yes, there are people for that are biologically hungry, but there is another cohort of people that are hungry for something else mm -hmm. uh, in, uh, um, you know, there's this notion of the, around the, the Dharma chakra, the hungry ghosts, right? Which is, mm -hmm. um, you know, people that, uh, you know, these, um, 
kind of this condition of living with you have a huge, huge stomach, but you can only eat through a straw. And so you feel like you have to continue to eat and accumulate more and more, but you're never sated, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, these, this opulent, corpulent, fill in the adjective couple <laughs> that you, you, you met um, uh, in this um, meeting with Mother Teresa, they were hungry clearly for something else, for relevance, for fulfillment. Obviously, they wanted that photo so they could put it on their mantle piece. So when people came over, you know, that they would get some sort of sense of respect. So they were looking for external approval. And, um, and you managed to leverage that learning and that compassion to tap into people's hunger for fulfillment mm. to raise hundreds of millions of dollars, right? And to give people a sense of meaning and sense of purpose. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, I don't know, you're too humble, I'm sure, to document how much money you've been able to, <laughs> to raise. And, and maybe that's not even the point, really. But, um, but certainly, you know, you've been instrumental not only in addressing the suffering of the most immiserated, but also in addressing a different kind of suffering, which is mm-hmm. fulfilling the the need for people to be to live a meaningful life, to live a committed life, mm-hmm. and uh, and that is a great great gift. Um, mm-hmm. And so, uh, you, you seem to be able to learn and then apply your learnings in ways that, that make huge differences. <laughs> I, 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 I hope so. I mean, I think that's what life's kind of all about, really. It's just a big school. <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> wisdom is taking your own advice. It's it's hard mm-hmm. to do it. Um, so, you know, and, and apropos to that, you know, you've had, as we've all had, you know, these moments of inflection, um, you call them sort of breakdowns that then become breakthroughs, right? Mm-hmm. So certainly the loss of your dad uh, was perhaps the first one in your life. Um, for me, I was, uh, when I was 13, um, I spent a stint at Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York City. Um, I was very fortunate, but I was in the pediatrics ward there for a number of weeks and, you know, got to experience a uh, tremendous amount of, of suffering um, amongst, you know, kids with cancer and leukemia mostly. And, you know, for me, that was my inflection point. Um, but certainly, um, uh, you know, for you, after dedicating so much of your life to the Hunger Project, you also had an inflection point where you got very, very ill and, um, uh, and I wonder if you could talk a little bit about your bout with malaria and then how that kind of set the stage for the next uh, phase of torchbearing. Well, I had um, the Hunger Project was a lifelong commitment for me. We, we used to say, and I said to hundreds of thousands of people because we had a huge, it, was a, it became a movement, it is, is now a movement. Um, that I've been here since the beginning. I'll be here till the end of hunger, the end of my life, whatever comes first. So I said that over and over and over and over again, and I meant it. And then in 1994, um, I had a, a mystical experience in a shamanic ceremony in Guatemala where I received a series of visions that I didn't understand 
of indigenous people of the Amazon, uh, uh, specifically the Achuar people. And I was lucky enough to be with John Perkins, a man who had served in the Peace Corps in Ecuador uh, years before and had uh, had deep knowledge of the indigenous uh, tribes and, and groups in Ecuador and Peru. And he knew right away when uh, I shared my vision with him, which he had also had, that the vision I was seeing was of the Achuar people, that they were people who had uh, avoided contact with the outside world deliberately, you know, voluntary non-contact, uh, and they were ready for contact, that they had seen in their dreams and visions that contact was inevitable and they were initiating it. And the way they do that is they were dreaming people to them. So whether you believe that or not, this was what I was told was happening to me. I was receiving these visions of these men with face paint and yellow, red, and black feather crowns. And I didn't understand why that was coming. I didn't yeah, understand. You're in, you, wait, wait, you're a nice Catholic girl. What are you doing having these <laughs> mystical visions? <laughs> I, it, it, and, and I just thought, well, shamanic ceremony, there wasn't any medicine or anything. It was just chanting and whistling and this beautiful shaman drumming. And he was just an awesome guy named Roberto Pose. But after that experience, I was haunted by it, but I didn't buy it, kind of. Uh, John Perkins said, listen, Lynn, they're calling for us. We need to go to the Achuar people. I know where they are. I know who they are. And this is very, it's a huge privilege, first contact, first major contact from the outside world. I said, I, I, I can't do that. I, I'm not thinking about the Amazon rainforest. I don't speak Spanish. I'm, I'm, I'm ending world hunger. I, I, I'm not done. I can't do it. You do that. So I went on to Ghana and Accra, as you mentioned, Accra, Ghana, to the Novo Hotel where I was staying there, kind of the lovely French hotel that's there. And I was in a meeting with my Ghanaian uh, sisters and brothers. In, um, and then in this, in this meeting, this weird thing happened where five men and three women sitting around an oval table in a conference room, the men started having orange geometric face paint appear in their faces. And no one saw this but me. And I thought I'm going crazy. And I apologized, left the meeting, told everybody I was not well because I thought I was going nuts. And I flew home and um, the visions did not stop. Um, and John Perkins came back from the Amazon and told me, yes, the Achuar are waiting for us to bring them 12 people from the modern world. We've got to put a trip together. And I said, anything to make these dreams stop. So we did. We took ourselves and 10 others, including my husband, Bill, to the Ecuadorian Amazon to uh, flying into you know, very dramatically flying into roadless, pristine, untouched Achuar territory and landed in a small, tiny plane, three people at a time in an open space near a river. And then they came out of the forest with their orange geometric face paint, just as I had dreamed, their yellow and black feather crowns. And it was uh, an encounter over which I never got. <laughs> and that leads me to say that I... I think they were looking for Bill Twist, my beloved husband, but he wouldn't have responded to the dreams uh, because he connected deeply. He, he was a, you know, running a couple companies, a business guy. He was yacht racing all the time. He had a boat. He wasn't doing that kind of weird stuff. I was doing kind of weird stuff, but he wasn't. <laughs> but yet when we went to the Amazon, who connected with the Achuar? It was all men warriors that we were uh, that we were with was Bill, and they trusted him immediately. He was kind of like 
they captured his heart, his soul, and his being. And I, me too, I don't mean to leave myself out of it, but, um, and after that, we took on being the modern friends of the Achuar Nation, um, which ended up becoming something called Pachamama Alliance. But when these indigenous people asked us to be their modern world friends, to educate them about the modern world, they also told us a very important thing. They, there's a famous indigenous quote, if you're coming to help us, don't waste your time. If you're coming because you know your liberation is bound up with ours, then let's work together. Mm -hmm. And so they said, we need your help to understand the modern world so we can stop the incursions that we see are coming. Oil companies, mining companies, lumber companies, all of that. We need your help with that. But we also want you to go home and change the dream of the modern world, mm -hmm. which is was a tall order. We weren't sure what it meant, but we knew it was big. So we went home and then Bill really sort of started this whole relationship, was sort of managing it back and forth. And I was trying to do the Hunger Project and what, what then became the Pachamama Alliance in the Amazon. And it was just too much. And I got very sick and I didn't know what was wrong with me. I just could not sit up. I couldn't stand. I couldn't eat. I couldn't sleep. I was sick, 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 sick. And I had many tests thinking that I, I just had malaria because not that that's a small thing, but I had been working in hunger and poverty. So I knew malaria when I saw it. And I thought, my God, I've got malaria. But the test, I had five tests that came up negative for malaria over several months. And finally, the sixth test confirmed I had had malaria all along. Vivax and Ovali, which are two strains, one from India, and one from Lake Tana in Ethiopia. And I was, I was like flattened by it. And I couldn't work for anybody. I couldn't do anything. And I look back on that now, you know, at the time I had no idea what was going on, but I look back on that now is, is I was being whooped, you know, by <laughs> yeah. God, by the universe, by the forest, whatever it was to just stop and pay attention to what was happening, that this was a new calling. I, I couldn't have stopped being at the Hunger Project without that, that illness. I just couldn't, because I had so many people that depended on me. I thought it was, you know, kind of the central cog in a huge wheel. I, I was or I wasn't, whatever it was, I, I didn't know how to leave. And um, that, it was nine months, which is also interesting, the, not eight months, mm -hmm. not 10 months, nine months, kind yeah. of prophetic. I had to be reborn in a new commitment, a new calling. And um, that, was the, that was the gift of that illness to have me realize this is the next chapter of my life, the Pachamama Alliance, the work in the Amazon, the work with the environment, the work uh, to change the dream of the modern world. So um, that was a long answer to your question about being sick, but it was very helpful and I'm grateful, I'm grateful. You know, one of the great teachings that, that you impart and every sage and mystic imparts is that, you know, oftentimes our greatest growth um, emerges from these places of, of rock bottom. Um, and, uh, you know, how do we find meaning in our suffering or transmute 
post-traumatic stress to post-traumatic growth and what are all of those learnings that, that come with that. Um, you know, changing the dream of the modern world is, it, it, it's a curious concept that I, that maybe you could help unpack a little bit because, uh, you know, I, I know that, that you, you kind of have a pentagon of commitments in, in your life, you know, one of which is to end hunger, um, another, which is supporting women, um, kind of step into, I think what you call the Sophia generation or, um, Sophia or, or era century. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, uh, addressing the health of the, of the rainforest and, and the ecosystems in the Amazon. And those are kind of specific in nature. Um, but changing the dream of the modern world is a very, philosophical concept. And and I wonder if you could unpack it a little bit. What does that mean? Well, when we first heard that phrase, uh, it came through John Perkins because it's translated uh, from Achuar, Shuar, Shiwiar, these indigenous people. They have a concept called Sumac Kosai, which Mm. is living in total harmony with one another, with the earth, the community of life and future generations. And, um, Changing the dream of the modern world is really shifting from the consumer, um, you know, scarcity, take everything you can. If if you don't take it, somebody else is going to get it. And if you don't take it, you'll be left out. You'll be one of the people who's left out. That This mentality is franticness, um, which is a dream of, you know, two cars in the garage and a swimming pool and then this and that and that is such a... a it's so fixed in who we know ourselves to be. Yeah. And the indigenous people really, they, they told us in their own way, you can't change your everyday actions until you change your dream because you'll always, your everyday actions are always going to line up with what you think you're headed towards or what you want for yourself. Right. But you can change the dream. You can change that dream to another dream, a dream that, of what we call an environmentally sustainable, spiritually fulfilling, socially just human presence on this planet. And if that's your dream, then that comes back and informs your everyday actions and they're consistent with that future. So it's a really incredible way that they see things, that if you change the the vision you have for yourself rather than try to change your everyday actions, it change it it informs and educates and actually begins to shift your everyday actions to be congruent with that new dream. Mm, so beautiful. changing the dream of the modern world is, is really means changing our whole trajectory as a human family, as a species. It's addressing global warming, climate change, you know, political division, inequality, uh, uh, poverty, hunger, uh, you know, empowerment of women. It, it's, it's about everything. <laughs> Uh, so it's a tall order. And when they first said that to us, it was like, wow, okay, thanks very much. We'll go home and work on that. But we didn't know what to do for years. Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't until 2005, and Paul Hawken was very instrumental in all this, when we started inventing a series of transformational educational programs, learning from the Hunger Project and asked about transformation and, and how to apply it to a real world problem that we created the a suite of programs at Pachamama Alliance that are about changing the dream of the modern world from a dream of extraction, consumption, acquisition um, to 
an environmentally sustainable, spiritually fulfilling, socially just human presence on this planet. Mm -hmm. And um, that's the core work of the Pachamama Alliance and probably the core work of my life now because it includes ending hunger, it includes empowering women, it includes preserving the Amazon, it includes indigenous wisdom, it includes spiritual depth, it includes you know, seeing people, seeing no one is poor, but circumstances is poor and everyone is whole and complete and self-reliant and self-sufficient when they have the opportunity to be that. So it's become a larger context as if I needed something larger um, <laughs> to to live a life of meaning and fulfillment and make the difference that, I, that perhaps I'm here to make. Yeah. In some ways, it's it's the way a functional medicine doctor tries to go upstream to yes. understand the root cause of disease instead of just masking symptoms um, with prescriptions or, or what have you. Mm -hmm. um, that this notion of of changing the dream really moves upstream mm -hmm. and um, it really examines these uh, central delusions, this kind of the lie of scarcity, for example, or, you know, the the feeling that there just isn't enough that we sort of instinctually sense. But again, you know, if we can just change, if we can essentially, like what you say, sort of manifest from the end, essentially change the dream such mm -hmm. that the chopping wood and carrying water of every day serves a different goal. Yeah, And, right. and like you kind of outlined in the book, which is, is kind of amazing transformation is that you're, you become the commitment Yes. that you make mm -hmm. and then life is just absolutely rich and expansive and effusive and 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 vibrant um and uh you know i i think about commitment you know in my own life because commitment you know so often gets um understood and defined within this sort of brackets of sacrifice of like mm -hmm. oh well what do i have to give up you know like you know so i think about you know, my relationship with my wife, for example, we've been together for 35 years, which is like wow. nuts. Um, and, you know, it could very easily be framed of like all the things that I had to give up during that time to have this mm -hmm. commitment, you know, but there could be nothing farther from the truth. In mm -hmm. fact, the commitment has allowed me to take all sorts of madcap risks and pursue wild dreams, you know, knowing that in failure, there is this kind of soft pillow of commitment to, to cushion my fall. <laughs> and believe me, there's been plenty of failures. And so in that sense, like commitment is the opposite of limitation. It's the opposite of sacrifice. It's actually liberation. It's given me the freedom to go out and do all these things, knowing that there is, you know, the community of my family and my wife to support me, you know, if I should falter. And, and inevitably, like I say, I've, I've faltered plenty of times. And so I think, you know, it's like in redefining that notion uh, of, of commitment and, um, and really, um, and understanding how liberating that that it can be, and you know, in the book, you um, you outline these toxic myths of scarcity, 
And I wonder if you might enumerate a couple of them, because I, I think it's really, really helpful. If we're going to change the dream, we have to change our mindset of that we have in connection to abundance, sufficiency, and scarcity. So can you untangle that just a tiny bit? Yeah. So I I call the mindset of scarcity uh, the great lie that drives a lot of the destruction of our planet and each other. Yeah. Uh, that that is such a pariah in our and we really we we believe it so deeply that we don't even know we're believing in scarcity. So it comes right. before thinking, before deliberation. We we look from a lens of there's not enough time, there's not enough money, there's not enough love, there's not enough sex, there's not enough this, there's not enough that. So the, the live scarcity has what I call three toxic myths. Number one, there's not enough. This belief that there's not enough to go around and someone somewhere is always going to be left out and you got to make sure it's not you and yours, whoever you think that is. So it immediately makes an us and a them. So toxic myth number one is deadly. There's not enough to go around and someone's going to be left out and make sure it's not you and yours. So yeah. then you, somebody's going to be left out, but you, you want to make sure it's not you and yours and you'll help them someday, but you have to have way more than you need in order to even think about that. There's not enough. The second one, more is better. More of anything and everything is better. I mean, Working with some of the billionaire families we work with, how in the world could they think they need more when they have billions of dollars? But they think that because it's an unconscious, unexamined assumption that more is just better, more more planes, more boats, more houses, more this, more that. Um, but that's true of everybody. We all think we need more of something, and it, but the unconscious, unexamined more and the uh, intensity of advertising and marketing, and then these algorithms now that are just like ugh, they're coming through uh, internet. Um, so the first toxic myth is there's not enough. The second is more is better, and the third is that's just the way that it is. And the mm -hmm. third one sounds kind of harmless, except it's the worst one because it holds the whole construct of the lies in place. Yeah. And so. Um, I, I try to do what I can to blow that out of the water, the mindset of scarcity. It's not, it, it, does, it doesn't mean that there aren't some places where people need more water or more opportunity. I'm not saying that, but it's the mindset, the unconscious, unexamined mindset that lives primarily in the affluent world that has us doing things that are inconsistent with our humanity. And then the, what I call the radical surprising truth is that there's enough. I mean, it's just, there's enough. There is yeah. enough. And if there's a wonderful, I think it's wonderful anyway, principle um, that I kind of like to cite, if you let go of trying to get more of what you don't really need, it frees up oceans of energy that's all tied up in this chase mm. to turn and pay attention to what you already have. When you pay yeah. attention to what you already have, when you nourish what you already have, when you share and make a difference with what you already have, it expands. So another short way of saying it is what you appreciate appreciates. Mm. And it's just a completely different way to live. But I think it's the radical surprising truth about life. You know, we, we all kind of know that when we watch a, a sunset or when we're, you know, putting our finger in the, the hand of a little baby that curls its fingers around you. There's enough of everything everywhere to have a healthy and productive life. It's, it's, 
it's not, we don't need to be desperate and frantic and accumulating and worrying. We can, we can rest in there is enough. We are, it's not just there's enough. We are enough because we start to have a deficit relationship with ourselves. It's not just there's not enough. It's not enough. We don't have enough. It starts to be, I am not enough. And then we have drug crises and obesity and mental illness. And But when you realize there is enough and we are enough, that's a, that's a way to live that I call the radical surprising truth. And that is available every minute to every human being, no matter what the circumstances. Hmm. Um, yeah, so I think that's kind of covers it. But you know, yeah. I can, farther with all that of course no no i, I appreciate that i mean uh I, I was just um i just interviewed louis schwartzberg and you play a, a wonderful role in um his recent film or documentary called gratitude revealed oh, I love, love him. and what you call uh great fullness um, yeah. which is great fullness it's a, mm -hmm. a portmanteau or or something like that which is um but they're all these, you know, stoic gratitude practices. And I, I think that kind of really gets to it is that when we can focus on loving what we have. Yes. Then we become whole and complete. Mm -hmm. And we actually acknowledge that we don't have as many needs as we think we do. Mm -hmm. And when you, in the absence of need love can be something given instead of taken mm. and it, it it really is uh transformational and mm. so there's all these in stoicism they're often framed as negative visualizations and they can kind of seem somewhat morbid so you you know instead of always being on this hedonic treadmill sort of like to eliminate the gap between you and happiness you can keep chasing things, right? But the second that you get that thing and you, you know, you unwrap it, you're already focused on the glittering, shining object on the horizon. So, you know, just the gap opens back up again. But the other way to address that gap is to move this way and to actually focus on loving what you already have. And mm -hmm. sometimes the way to do that is imagine losing something that you already have that you love and cherish mm -hmm. and then coming back to the realization that there it is in your life and it's yeah. here. Right. And, um, and that can really move you into a place of munificence um, and, and certainly um, gratitude. So mm -hmm. I, I, I want to be mindful of your time because I feel like there's so many things that I, I want to probe. Um, you know, there's a wonderful story that you tell about Mandela and forgiveness Um and uh, just having spent a lot of time in South Africa, um, that story really, you know, hit my heart in a very direct way. Um, mm -hmm. But but I will just encourage people to um, to really read, get your book and and read it, and also enroll in some of the programs that you offer um, through the Soul of Money Institute. Um, but I guess I, I'd like to kind of move into the denouement of our conversation by by asking you kind of just some practical questions for people that are seeking the committed a committed life a life of greater meaning what are some of the ways that that, that people can pursue that because I, I think a lot of the time um 
people feel a sense of paralysis or numbness in the face of the enormity of the world's problems. And then it's just easier to do nothing and they can't answer a calling. So how would you um, advise people? Like, what are some of the steps that people can take to, to live this more fulfilling, committed life? Um, well, uh, I'll just say that the, there's a, um, there, uh, let's see, how to, how to answer that in a practical way. But before I get practical, I just <laughs> want to say, I, I yeah. really think that if you're alive today, you have a role to play. And because it's so epic that this, this decade, you know, you think about how it, this decade really got announced in 2019 with the pandemic. It's like the indigenous people called the pandemic an announcement, right. um, not a punishment, but an announcement from the mother to pay attention and go within because big stuff is coming. And when you think about 20, that was 2019. So 2020, 2021, 2022, 2023, 2024, 2025, 2022, to 2029, to 2030. This is the pivotal decade. We have, we have so much we want to accomplish, we as the human family in this decade. This is so pivotal. Um, so if you're alive now, you've got a role to play. That's what I say. And it may not be a big giant role and it may not be a little tiny role. It's just your role. And if you know that, and believe what I'm saying, or, or even listen to what I'm saying. There's you're being called. I I say that that this is the most exciting time for anyone to be alive. We can make such a difference with our life. The choices we make influence the future of life for the next one thousand years. Mm. That's like so cool. That's not a burden. <laughs> that ennobles your life. That makes your life so meaningful. So we have this critical, pivotal time where we're alive. And what is your role in it? Well, what breaks your heart? Pay attention to that. Mm. And what yeah. breaks your heart is a sign that there's a role for you there. Or what, you know, makes you cry in a good way, touches your soul. Um, who are your heroes and heroines? How can you get behind them, even if they're living or dead? Um, what did you care about most when you were a child that you now realize, oh my God, I can do something about that now. Um, and, and step into life. Don't retract. Step into life. Be bold. Be, um, be, be, uh, you know, that wonderful phrase from Ramdas, use fierce grace to engage with what's not working. Mm. That you, that you want to get involved in prison work. You know, do something about the homeless. Uh, you know, if, if you if you're terrified of child abuse, don't be terrified by it. Get engaged with it. When we're not in action, we worry and get upset. And you know, Michael Beckwith, the great reverend, he says, worry is a form of negative prayer. Yeah. If you spend all your time worrying about stuff, worrying about the political divide, worrying about what the Republicans are going to do or what the Democrats are going to do. Stop it. Get involved. When you're in action, you don't have time to worry. Yeah. So, you yeah. say this great thing in the book about taking a stand versus taking a position. Yes, you're right. Right? So yeah. by taking a position, you inherently create 
an opposition. There's sort of some Newtonian laws of motion there <laughs> at play where, you know, one action begets an, an equal and opposite reaction. Yeah. And, you know, I'm a progressive, but sometimes I'm very critical of my friends on, on the left because, you know, sometimes they're taking positions that are really only meant or really only result in an equal opposition. Mm-hmm. And then we don't get anywhere. Yes. In ter- versus <clears throat> forming um, versus transformation yes. from the current situation. Mm-hmm. Sort of where can we find common ground and come together and 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 acknowledge <clears throat> the best parts of the current situation and then move ourselves forward? Um, I really love that that framing. Um, because right now it's so easy to become positional, right? Yeah. Um, it's almost like a, like a cop out. Um, I, you well, know, I have, you, yeah, yeah, go ahead. Please. I have, a, I have a, a friend, Bob Boister, who's president and CEO of the Fetzer Institute. He wrote a really great, uh, op-ed in the Washington Post recently. He said, not right, not left. Let's go deep. Yeah. Not right, not left. Go deep. And I love that. That's that's actually taking a stand, uh, which is it, which is not a posi- doesn't create positionality, but gives you you relinquish your point of view, your point of view, like from whence you look. Yeah. To you relinquish that, and when you let go of that, you get vision. You can see all points of view, and they all make sense, and they're all right. useful, and they all have the opportunity to be heard and respected. Or respect means re-see reheard, re-listened to, yeah. so that your stand can be a place from which you see it all and can move what wants to happen forward. And you can feel what wants to happen when you take a stand. It's not what you want. It what want it's what wants to happen. Yeah. You become a, a instrument, you become a vehicle, you become a a channel for for that which wants to happen, which is so fulfilling. And I also say that taking a stand and living a committed life, rather than closing down your options, which is what people worry about, you know, I want to keep all my options open. Well, if you keep your options open, you're paralyzed. You're going, which one, which one? (laughs) You can't go forward. But when when you take a stand, when you make that kind of a commitment, you're free, actually. You're free to fully express yourself. It's the key to, I think, freedom and fulfillment. So, um, yeah, I, that's what I want people to do. That's why I write yeah. this book. <laughs> yeah. Well, you have a, a wonderful Howard Thurman quote in the book, um, which I think encapsulates a lot of what we were just kind of pointing at, which is, uh, don't ask what the world needs. Ask what makes you come alive and go do it because what the world needs is people who have come alive, right? Exactly. <laughs> Something that's like that. exactly right. Exactly. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, I'll just say... Um, you know, your work has been just, you know, so inspirational. You, you have held the, the splendid torch. And I'll just give you um, just kind of one um, very uh, concrete example kind of from my own life. So, you know, you know, we've been very fortunate in our lives. My family, I, I also have three children, uh, three daughters. And, um, you know, I was thinking about, you know, I was reading your work and thinking about, a committed life and what role that we can play. And so for Christmas, um, yes, I did give my children some regular old gifts. <laughs> um, but um, my primary 
focus was establishing um, a small foundation. Um, and, you know, I, I couldn't endow it with a tremendous amount of money, um, but instead of, you know, putting the money towards more trinkets and gadgets, uh, I endowed, you know, this small foundation, um, you know, obviously with the goal of being able to support worthy organizations that are doing amazing work, but also as a means to bring our family together around a committed lifestyle. Mm -hmm. And the conversations that it has spawned with my three teenage daughters around mm -hmm. the dinner table over the holiday break were just so inspirational and illuminating because we started to talk about, well, okay, so, you know, through this small foundation, we can give X amount of dollars away. You know, Phoebe, what do you think? Where, where should we devote, you know, some of that money? Or Lolly, Andine, or Micah, my three daughters. And everyone, you know, and it started to uh, foster this conversation around giving mm -hmm. where we almost uh, kind of coalesced around, uh, you know, a mission statement for where we wanted, you know, our money to go to try to kind of focus some of it. Um, but then, you know, just we kind of established, you know, these, we're going to have like these quarterly meetings as a family. And then I got my mom involved and uh. she, she put a little into the fun and I was like, don't get me any Christmas presents. Mm. Just, you know, everyone can, can just donate to this and I don't need anything. So just birthday, Christmas, anything else, just put, put in here. And it's so easy to do. I mean, you don't necessarily have to start a whole foundation. You can just start like a, a fund that anyone can do through like a fidelity or something like that. And, um, and you don't need to do, you don't have, have to have billions of dollars. You can have $5,000, $10,000. But I think the focus or the dispositive piece of what I'm saying here is that it can really focus, refocus your family life mm -hmm. uh, in a really meaningful way. And so uh, I have a lot of gratitude for, uh, for you and your work because I don't think we would have ever done that if I hadn't been kind of focused on, you know, where we can, um, you know, bend the arc of history in our little way. So I'm very, uh, uh, very grateful. Uh, I love that. I love, I love, 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 love that. Thank you for saying that. Yeah. I'm doing so, Lynn, um, thank you so much uh, for your time today. I, I, I truly appreciate it. I, I know how sought after you are, and I know that fitting into your schedule is no easy task. So uh, I'm deeply appreciative, and, and I, I hope um, this can be continued because there's, there's so much to excavate here around um, how we can live a committed life and how a committed life is, is really a fulfilling life. So thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. I loved this interview. I've done a lot of interviews mm. as you have. I loved talking to you. Thank you so much. You're so thoughtful. You're so engaging and you really do your homework. And I really feel <laughs> seen and heard and appreciated by you. And I want to give that right back to you. Thank you so uh, much. This was beautiful, really beautiful. Sweet. That's sweet. I, I'm always, uh, um, I always feel bad that I don't get to like, all the notes, you know, because there's so much in here. Um, you know, just the mission statement for the Pachamama Alliance mm. could be the topic of an entire podcast conversation mm. and, and more. Um, mm -hmm. So uh, I appreciate your willingness to kind of just hop around <laughs> quite a bit and be nimble. Yeah. 
Well, I'm available for you anytime. I, I love this conversation. It's one of my favorites. Thank you for listening to my conversation with the global activist, Lynn Twist. Please support her work by buying her new book, Living a Committed Life, which presents her vision for a world that works for everyone. And if you enjoy this show, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. If you are a regular listener, you have a sense for how much effort we put into the show's creation. We really love it and care for it. And we do our best to keep ads to a minimum. So if you're looking for a way to support our efforts, the best way is to subscribe to the Commune course platform. You'll access more than 100 courses featuring the world's top authors and thought leaders like Lynn. You can check it out for 14 days for free at onecommune.com trial. Of course, feel free to reach out to me directly with suggestions or questions or criticism of the constructive variety at jeffk at onecommune.com. Lastly and not leastly, I'd like to thank the folks that make this show possible week over week, including Jacob Laub, Megan Stone, Violet Augustine, Silvana Alcala, Wellington Gonzalez, and Ryan Tillotson. Okay, that's all from the commune for today. My name is Jeff Krasnow, and I'm here for you.